0: Time for Security Now. Steve wraps up his look at iOS security, and here comes the bad news. Plus, bad news about a zero-day flaw in Microsoft Office. It's all next on Security Now. Netcasts you love.
1: From people you trust.
0: This This is TWIT. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode four hundred forty-eight, recorded March twenty-fifth, twenty fourteen. iOS Security Part Three. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging, informative tutorials. streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device for fifty percent off the lifetime of your account. Go to itpro.tv/securitynow and use the code SN five zero. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way you want to, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to proxpn.com slash twit and use the code SN20. And by ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with ShareFile from Citrix. Try ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Go to sharefile.com, click the microphone, and enter security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your privacy online with Mr. Stephen Gibson of GRC.com. Seems like we were just together moments ago. Oh, we were. 24 Steve. hours ago, Leo, yes. Very kindly. Steve uh, spent some time with us on Triangulation yesterday, if you haven't seen that interview. Well, the, the nice thing about getting our hosts on Triangulation is a chance, and we've done almost everybody now. Oh, good. Yeah, it's a chance to... Spend an hour talking about the things we don't talk about on the air. So we talked about your youth, that great picture of you as a four-year-old doing some wiring, um, your influences, and your advertising agency. <laughs> still cracks me up.
1: Somebody I, – I got a tweet from someone saying they're still laughing
0: about that in the name of my <laughs> – Gibson my... and Garnish. Yep. Find out more at uh, triangulation, twit.tv slash TRI. Now – what are we doing uh, this week on Security Now, Mr. G? The never-ending
1: series on Apple iOS security. Will finally I, end. Yes. It will finally end, oh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, on a bit of a sour note. Oh. Um, essentially, and this really, I mean, this this is a great lesson for us because one of the overarching themes that we have seen develop through the industry and reflected in the podcast is that security is difficult, and that that it's very hard to get these things right. Um, so, um, I assume we're going to have time to get to the very last thing I want to talk about, which is what is jailbreaking and how can you have jailbreaking if you have everything we've talked about so far? But there are Two things specifically that we haven't talked about, we just haven't gotten to because there was so much I wanted to cover. And I really wanted to, as we have in the last two podcasts, lay down a, a good understanding and foundation of what it is that Apple has has created in the iPhone, iPad, iOS platform. And we'll talk about iMessage and how, unfortunately, what they say is not true about iMessage and about Putting your keys in the cloud, which is the most worrisome thing Mm. of all. Mm. Um, And of course, we've got a catch up with the news this week. It must have been a slow news week for the industry because most of what I have to talk about is debunking hysterical headlines.
0: I think you're going to be doing a lot more of that over the years because just people, sensationalism garners clicks, frankly. Well,
1: and, and even in a A story picked up from a respected, I assumed, journal about Internet security claimed that WPA2 Wi-Fi had been cracked and everyone picked up on it
0: and echoed this absolute nonsense like nothing happened. So <laughs> it's you know so, it's a nexus between sensationalism and and and, and uh, a lack of technical depth or understanding or context maybe would yes. be a better word paranoia and and you mix those up uh, you know I'm, I'm reminded uh, remember the Pwn to own the guy just to own which is a great idea wrote the article about how a virus had jumped the air gap between yes. his computer and another computer and everybody got all up in arms and uh, you know this is a reliable guy one thinks. Yeah, he had some
1: credibility that he had built up over time. And, you know, he was absolutely sure that, you know, this virus was jumping, uh, you know, across breeds of computers. And, you know, many people who actually understand where bios has come from explained how that's absolutely not possible. I mean, it's like it's like, you know, the the slammer worm infecting your cat. I mean, it's like no, it's (laughs)
0: different species. Not
1: not that kind of worm.
0: But I think that partly is also it's a much bigger topic than it used to be, and no one person grasps the whole of it. So it's easy for somebody who does grasp some of it to miss another piece of it. Apple is an example here too.
1: Yes, and in this instance, this the article, this journal is an academic journal behind a paywall, and when I looked in all the standard places to find somebody who had like innocently let go of it. I paid my 30 euros to purchase it. And so one of the other problems may be that it just wasn't generally available. Mm-hmm. One from in like tracking this down, one one um, news source did this sensationalized treatment and looking carefully at the wording in everybody else who also said the same thing. It looked like they were all copying from yeah. this si- this single source. So that's, you know, another
0: problem we have. On the bright so, side, there is a process. You have to be patient over time that this stuff can, I think in the long run, the truth outs. And it's people,
1: called the Security Now podcast. Yeah, people Leo.
0: listen to the show and, yeah,
1: that's and they what go, we're here okay, for. let's
0: get the truth let's, here. We'll
1: yeah. find out what's going on. So yeah. we're going to talk about an important, the one really important thing is uh, just a couple days ago, actually, Uh, Yeah, I guess it was yesterday. Um, Microsoft released the news that they were aware of a zero-day vulnerability in Word, which does require some immediate action from our listeners. There's a there's a uh, you know fix it click quickie before they do the official patch. Um, We'll talk about the Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit (EMET), which we've never spoken of before, though it's been around for years. about this ridiculous claim that WPA2 has been cracked. Also, again, I mean, even from someone as venerable as Symantec, there, there's like hysterical headlines saying that you can text an ATM to give you money. Um, then with uh, Google has announced some improvements to Gmail. Um, I've f- seen something that is what I consider by the very first clear overstep of Snowden's charter, uh, which is – Worrisome and new version of Firefox and some other updates and things. Wow. So a great, a great podcast for us.
0: Well, before we get too far, uh, you know, along on this, maybe it'd be a good time for me to, to break in and mention uh, one of our sponsors. We've got three great ones on the show today, and I love these guys. Don and Tim came by the studio uh, a few months ago, and uh, uh, we gave them a little tour and we talked. and They said, I, "Can We t- I just want to tell you, we've started this company based on everything that you've done." And I hope you don't take this as uh, wrong, but we've copied you. And when I saw what they did, I said, "No, I not only do not take it wrong. This is great." Uh, Don and Tim and the team at IT Pro TV are expert trainers in uh, you know the certifications, the stuff you need if you want a career in IT or you want to learn about you know IT topics, things like A plus, Net plus, Security plus. Those are the CompTIA certs, the Microsoft certs, the Cisco certs. They've got a new series going now on uh, the ISC2 stuff. Uh, this is all stuff that uh, helps you get a better job, helps you get that piece of paper that gets you their first job in IT, and it just helps you become a better IT professional. For years they taught it in more traditional means. They, they, they were fans of the screensavers. They saw what we did at, at Twit, and they said, you know, this would be a great way to teach this material as well. So if you're looking for a Twit that is so geeky, <laughs> that, is, or that teaches you the stuff you need to know, to take the big tests this is the place itpro.tv slash uh at, let's see slash security now and you can see uh, the live they do live streaming they do about 20 new hours a week well, just like us when they do live you can also see uh, the chat room you can ask questions of their trainers they cover the topics though it's a little different than what we're doing We're generally covering all technology. They're covering the topics, that the stuff you will be asked uh, on these tests. And they even break their uh, episodes down by test topics. So you can polish up for a particular part of the test. I just think this is such a great idea. Furthermore, um, and I really like this, it's flat rate. So you pay once and you can have the complete library to yourself. You can watch on your computer or your tablet, but they also have a Roku channel. So... I would suggest having this running on your your big screen TV 24-7. And just, you know, (laughs) over a period of time, you'll learn it all. We've got a special deal for you as well. 50% off your subscription, not just for the first month or first year, but for life. Now, normally, IT TV is $57 a month, $570 a year. That's very affordable, especially when you compare it to the costs of uh, going to a school, a technical school for this, or even just buying those prep materials. But right now, if you sign up and use the code SN50, you'll get 50% off. That means it's twenty eight fifty a month, $285 for a year, and you're going to get everything you need. You're going to learn, learn, learn. I want you to try it right now. Just visit itpro.tv security now. You can watch some of the samples, get an idea of what they're doing. And then if you want to subscribe, use the code SN50 to save 50%. Love these guys. Love what they're doing. Uh, It's more than an homage. I think they're really filling in a need. ITPro.TV slash security now. Steve Gibson, Leo Laporte. Let's get the uh, security news before we dive into this iOS security stuff.
1: Yeah, so the most important thing is that what was discovered by Microsoft um, and we don't really know too much about the history of this, but they are saying that this is being exploited in the wild due to the nature of it. It's probably targeted attacks. So these are, you know, probably bad guys that found a way to get their code into a person's computer who are sending them specially crafted email spear phishing. That that exactly. Yeah. That that the entry point is the. The RTF format renderer for Microsoft Word Office's version 2003, 2007, 2010, and 2013. RTF is the rich text format, which is – it's been around for, wow, um, decades, I guess. Oh, I always Um, use
0: it. I mean, it was created by Microsoft, but it's kind of the lingua franca of word processors.
1: Yeah, and it it. – it predates um it predates h t m l the the normal way you have of viewing r t f files in a windows system is wordpad you know note notepad is like the raw text file viewer and and editor wordpad you know what 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 is different about wordpad is that it's Essentially, a a just a a user interfaced container around the RTF renderer, so it shows RTF files, rich text format files, and naturally, um, with Word, Word is a sort of intending to be a superset of that. It of course understands DOC and DOCX, but also all the way back. It, obviously, you can open a text file, you can open an RTF file. Yeah, in fact, well,
0: an so, RTF, I should say, is used also uh by evernote that's its format for the notes you store at evernote and oh. it is also used by outlook and many other email programs as one of the alternatives to html mail or plain text in fact most of my the clients that i use offer rtf and sometimes even by default as their formatting so right you're
1: you're you're able to you know to 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 make embellished text yeah, bold, which is a
0: fonts type basically, you know
1: Right, exactly. Color, bold, mm-hmm. font size, font change, and so forth. I thought it was just a pure data format. I, I didn't think it was dangerous. Well, and this is the problem, is that by – essentially, there is an, there's an always going to be an interpreter which is reading the text file. And, for example, there are – in our in RTF, you have escape – Events where you say, like, you have a font change escape, where it's, you know, backslash and then a command and then some parameters for the font, which means that there's code that gets involved in interpreting that escape sequence and then looking up and loading and then rendering in that font. So if there's an a mistake in that interpretation, that presents an opportunity for... A vulnerability, and that's what someone found. So, so the the normal vector is Word, but Microsoft notes that that the same RTF renderer is also the default renderer for um, Outlook. So, not only opening a Word document which is in RTF format, but even email as a vector is a way for this thing to get in. So. They they note that there are mitigations in Office 2013, even though the problem is still there. That that is the the RTF renderer for the latest version of Office Office 2013 still has the problem. But and we'll talk about this in a minute. There are mitigations that prevent it from succeeding if that's the version of Office you have. So uh, um, anyway, so that's the problem. There it, it's a it's a a newly discovered means of, of executing code through a ma- deliberately malformed file, in this case, an RTF format file. Um, and in in the in their technet blog, Microsoft said, um, the in the wild exploit takes advantage of an unspecified, uh, which means RT- Microsoft is not specifying it. <laughs> They're wanting to keep this quiet. An unspecified—I mean, they know what it is—an unspecified RTF parsing vulnerability combined with an ASLR bypass. I, I mentioned that because we've just been talking about address space layout randomization and and how how Im- how useful that is in in mitigating the damage which something can do. If it, if it, if there's a vulnerability that, that's exploited by by making it harder for the bad guys to know where things are in your system through randomizing the layout of the address space, you're often able to completely prevent this bad thing from happening. Um, so they say this a l a so, but there is an ASLR bypass, which this thing has worked out, which depends. Um, on a module loaded at a predictable memory address. They said, first, our tests showed that EMET, E-M-E-T, default configuration can block the exploits seen in the wild. In this case, EMET's mitigations, such as mandatory ASLR and anti-ROP, that's the we talked about that also just recently in the context of the iOS podcasts that that's the um, return to code exploits where where something knows where some code is it's unable to to execute code itself because for example it just it, there there may be restrictions of one form or another the amount of the amount of buffer space it has that is the, that the exploit has or the, the, the nature of the constraints of the execution environment, but it's able to jump to something located, for example, in a known location in the operating system and execute that code. So that, this is the anti-ROP features. Um, and Microsoft says those things in EMET effectively stop the exploit. Then they say you can find out more information about EMET at, at just microsoft.com slash EMET. For anyone who's wondering, we'll talk about that in a second. So um, this is bad enough that some people in the industry have speculated that Microsoft may do an out-of-cycle patch. And, you know, we're two weeks away from this next second Tuesday of the month, which will be famously the, the last <laughs> gasp of, of XP's uh, updates, April 8th. Um, they may or may not have it in time for that, but there is a fix it, um, for this. I don't have, didn't do a a quick link. Unfortunately, I just skipped my memory or my mind. I did tweet it, uh, this morning, uh, uh, um, some news of this. So, um, uh, it's definitely worth doing anyone who, uh, well, anyone who's using windows and has office installed, Should consider this. If anything you're doing might uh, might cause you to encounter a a document or a file or even email that uh, could be malicious, and we don't know how quickly this is going to scale up. We don't have a, a sense for how widespread this is, but it's you know it's real and definitely worth taking a look at. Now, this enhanced mitigation experience toolkit is interesting. We've it's been floating around for many years worth of podcast and I've just never gotten around to discussing it. One of the reasons is that it is not easily usable. It's not the kind of thing where, for example, like like an AV system where you just pretty much drop it in and you never have to think about it and it takes responsibility for keeping you safe. What this Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit does is it forces on a number of of well-known mitigations that we have talked about. I mean, we've we've talked about all the pieces of this. Um, The problem is that because Microsoft got such an early start on building these systems, um, and whereas, for example, iOS had the advantage of starting much later You know, Apple was able to say with the iPhone, which is very new compared to the beginning of Windows, which is now decades old, um, you know, we're going to incorporate these things from the beginning. And, And this is the problem. If you, it turns out, if you enforce address space layout randomization, which is a powerful mitigation, many things break. So... Microsoft is stuck. They would like to turn this on, but they just can't because it breaks too many things. Which and, and the reason it breaks them is it wasn't always there. And this is this is the lesson of all of this is for example Apple is able to always enforce address space layout randomization because the concept existed before iOS did and it was proven and clearly a good thing. So as I mentioned last week, uh, as part of the d- the development environment and the the general iOS environment, the Xcode system for creating iOS apps always has that on. And and the point is, therefore as a developer, you are never able to depend upon in any way the known position of something. Whereas If you developed an environment which never had it on, you might make some assumptions about that environment, which turning it subsequently on would would break. So so this Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit is free. It's at 4.1 now with a a technical um, preview of 5 coming. I mention it now because it's one additional thing that people who wish to continue using XP after April 8th might add to their toolkit. Again, I would say, um, you know, I did say last week, don't use Office. And, and this, the problem we've just been speaking about, you know, X, this is not a problem with XP. This is a problem with the stuff that contacts the, the, the environment like your browser, like office, like email and so forth. So that's why I was saying LibreOffice made more sense than than office if you wanted something that's going to continue to 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 receive uh, care. But um the reason I say this with caution, that is not not just for everyone to go install it is from Microsoft's own statement. They said the enhanced mitigation experience toolkit is a utility, and I love the name, Enhanced Mitigation Experience. It's like, okay, well, what the <laughs> <hell>? you know, <laughs> I know, is a utility that helps prevent vulnerabilities in software from being successfully exploited. So again, this is where I, we, we made it very clear last week, and, and it, there are two things. There's can the software somehow get a foothold that is malware, something malicious, The bad guy, get a foothold. And if it can, what can it do about it? And so the mitigation is to mitigate the damage done from, the, from a vulnerability that's discovered. So Microsoft says Emmett achieves this goal using security mitigation technologies. These technologies function as special protections and obstacles that an exploit author must defeat – to exploit software vulnerabilities. That's perfectly clear. These security mitigation technologies do not guarantee that vulnerabilities cannot be exploited. However, they work to make exploitation as difficult as possible to perform. True, if those mitigations are present. And they're not normally because unfortunately, they break too many things. So... Um, why not just, I just answered my own question. Why not just build this in? Um, even Microsoft said when Emmet mitigations are applied to certain software or certain kinds of software, compatibility issues may occur. And this is one of those may occur where we know what they really mean, but because the protected software behaves similarly to how an exploit would behave. So, you know, this is. It is, in a sense, behavior monitoring. It's looking at the behavior of the software and saying, we uh, don't think you should be doing that. But it's possible that good software might want to do the same thing. Then here's where I got a big kick out of this, because they said, this is, again, Microsoft's own explanation right up front of Emmett. The following is a list of special products. I'm sorry, of specific products just to give you a flavor, a sense, that have shown compatibility issues with the mitigations that are offered by Emmett. You will have to disable specific incompatible mitigations if you want to protect the product by using Emmett, (laughs) which uh, sort of, you know, defeats the purpose. Uh, Be aware that the list takes into consideration default settings for the product. Compatibility issues may be introduced, that is above and beyond, when you install certain add-ins or additional components to the standard software. So, as a sample, the seven, the very popular 7-zip uh, console GUI and file manager, Adobe Acrobat, Acrobat Reader, certain AMD slash ATI video drivers, Apple iTunes, Dropbox, Google Chrome, of all things, Google Talk, Oracle's Java. Well, that might be a blessing, actually. But, um, but not only other people's things, even Skype doesn't work with Emmett on, nor does Windows Media Player or Windows Live Photo Gallery. So you get a sense for the fact that anyone who's going to choose these enhanced mitigation, choose to have the enhanced mitigation experience, needs to also take responsibility for all the things that's going to break. and then go in and spend some time tuning and tweaking in order to get things that used to work before you enhanced your mitigation experience <laughs> um, in order to, to, <laughs> in order to bring it back to uh, the ground and, and make it work. So it's there. Um, it's one more, tool, a useful tool in the toolbox. and it may well be that in in constrained environments where people, for whatever reason, really do want to continue using um, XP, we already know you shouldn't use IE, you should not run as an admin. Oh and by the way, not running as an administrator present pre- prevents this whole zero day exploit. Oh. It o- yeah, so there again, the same advice, make wow. yourself a disempowered user, not admin. And you don't have you don't have any of this problem anyway so um uh that's now that's that news we're definitely worth disabling this. I'm sure Microsoft will be patching it i imagine in that they ought to have time in the next you know two weeks to get this done by the uh the deadline do they have oh, to by write the way, a new office
0: renderer for rtf or
1: no 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 they just have to remove a jump instruction or oh, something right. i mean it's like okay. it's some it's something where you know they did a string they did a string copy right. and forgot to check the size right. of the buffer of right. the destination and it turns out you could maliciously you, you give it a font name that's 4k <laughs> long and it would right. just w- wipe out something inside of the kernel and and give the attacker control—that right. kind of thing—and they right. they stick their shell code as part of the font name, and then the 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 routine that called it would jump into the code rather than into its own return instructions. Execute your code, and then off you go—that yeah. kind of thing. So you know, probably a buffer overrun somewhere in the R, the RTF renderer. So you know, it's like ooh, you know, if we only check the size of the destination buffer, that's uh, yeah, huh. And if you'd only not put GDI in the kernel. <laughs>
0: Would be easier, wouldn't it?
1: Oh God, none of this. Yes, this was done because, as I when I was ranting at some point recently, I don't know if it was yesterday on triangulation or in the podcast in the week or two before. But I was talking about how Microsoft was always. Oh, it was yesterday because we were talking about craftsmanship and software Mm. construction Mm. and how. You know, remember how slow Windows was in the old mm-hmm, days. Mm-hmm. I mean, it. I only, st- I only started, I only went into Windows in order to run Micrographics Designer, that was this beautiful dr- early drawing tool. Otherwise, I just got out of there as quickly as I could because it was just painful to use. And then, thank God, we got graphics accelerators, the very first, you know, hardware blitters. On display cards that that so that the blitting didn't have to be in software. And to their credit, Microsoft did everything they could. They were just asking for more than the than the hardware could do, more than more than the hardware could give them. And at one point, they decided, okay, there's so much communication between GDI, which was a module running in user space, down into the kernel. And these so-called ring transitions, which is a security check. I mean, the ring transition is there because you don't want. I mean, because you you don't want the unprivileged code to have privileges. So, in a, when you cross that boundary, there there's a whole bunch of things changes that allows the the code now to do things with privilege it didn't have before it crossed. That is time consuming on the, on an Intel system. So what Microsoft decided was, oh, I know how we can make this faster. Let's take this whole blob, this GDI, the graphics device interface, and put it in the kernel. Then it'll all be privileged and there'll be no more ring transitions while it (laughs) talks to the rest of the kernel. And And they can crash this machine like nobody's business. Yes, and now all of your buffer overruns Mm. are in the kernel rather than Mm -hmm. where they used to be in user land, Mm -hmm. where they couldn't do nearly as much damage Mm -hmm. as they could. So we've been paying that price for that decision now for, you know, a decade.
0: Um, You saw saw the, uh, maybe you didn't, the um, Android exploit that uh, could could force reboots of your Android 4 and later by having a 387,000 character application name. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh you know i guess they never really thought that anybody'd do that uh, or something
1: if there's a will
0: <laughs> who found that Wow.
1: <laughs> well and you know what it was it was it is one of the benefits of open source which and again it's yes. a mixed blessing you know where white hats are. yeah white hats can look at it and go oh wait look at this here's a string copy that's not checking the size right. of its destination buffer Right. Unfortunately, bad guys can look at it and go, oh wait, look, here's a string copy that's not checking mm-hmm. the size of his desk. Oh, look, they're copying the application name. Let's give it a monster. Yeah. And yep. pow. Boom. Yeah. Okay, so WPA2 Wi-Fi security cracked. Oh my is God. Like, it Leo, that's what it says. Breaking on news. Many. many <laughs> Many yeah. Internet, and we know that everything on the Internet it's all true. is true. They're all true. Yeah. And so if you Google right now, WPA2 Wi-Fi security cracked, Google will obligingly give you links to all of these articles that pretty much say the same thing because it all apparently came from the same place. Um, it looks like it came from sciencespot.co.uk, um, the science news with interscience research spot, and so it was called Science Spot, where the headline was exactly as I said, WPA2 Wireless Security Cracked. And unfortunately, I cannot pronounce the names of these three guys. My guess is they had a paper due. And, you know, so they <laughs> they thought, well, okay, let's do a paper. Um, so these three guys, Br- Brunel University in the UK, uh, the University of Macedonia in Greece... Um, And uh, uh, I guess Lancaster University in the U.K. have investigated the vulnerabilities in WPA2, and, and this is what the article says, and present its weakness. They say that this wireless security system might now be breached with relative ease by a malicious attack on a network. Oh, my God. That's headline news. Wow. I know. They suggest that it is now a a matter of urgency that security experts and programmers work together. Okay, we're going to work together, Leo, to fix this, to remove the vulnerabilities in WPA2, those pesky vulnerabilities, in order to bolster its security or to develop alternative protocols. Maybe just scrap it. You know, we need WPA3. To keep our wireless network safe from hackers and malwares. And finally, they said, the researchers, whose names we cannot pronounce, have now shown that a brute force attack on the WPA2 password is possible and that it can be exploited, although the time taken to break into a system rises with longer and longer passwords. How much does it rise oh, yeah. by, Steve? Wow. <laughs> you think? <laughs> so this this verbatim made
0: headlines all
1: over sciencedaily.com. Mm-hmm. Breathlessly.
0: What's, what's funny repeated. is if you do that search you'll see articles from 2010, 2012, 2013 saying the same thing because this is nothing new. We've known this forever. No. no.
1: So I looked around tried to find this anywhere sometimes you know even I mean, this is clearly behind the paywall sometimes though you can just you know other sites will just post right, them Right, uh, you know that you just so some you know if you really have low resistance to paying you just pay if your resistance is a little higher you poke around a bit right. and you can often find the same thing well, i find 30 that 1 euro
0: is non trivial i mean that's
1: yeah it's expensive yeah. yeah but thankfully our listeners have been wonderful about purchasing spinright To recover their data and in some cases just to say thanks for the podcast or (laughs) to purchase six because they know the 6.1 will run on their Mac. And so I can afford 30 euros for the sake (laughs) of the podcast. Thank you, Steve. So in my effort to give back, I plunked down my money. I got this 12-page PDF and plowed into it looking for what they had discovered. Now they said they 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 had 10 test passwords they used off the shelf um apps that um you know linux based things AirSnort and and uh aircrack and you know the things we've talked about through the years nothing new nothing invented this i mean and there was lots of citations they have three pages of of citations at the end of other people that they're talking about, as they sort of give us the history of W of wireless WAN insecurities and all these problems. And they have they showed 10 passwords. The first one was ice cream, the second one was transubordination, and the other eight were gobbledygook. Okay. And in and quoting them, they said in some of the cases. The key was very simple, case one and two. <laughs> yeah,
0: called dictionary words.
1: <laughs> Whereas in the other ones, the key was too complex. Too complex. And they say cases three through ten. Yeah. Then they said, okay, in their discussion after this, WPA slash WPA2 was are, are considered amongst the most secure protocols. This is due to the fact that even... Having an instance of the pre-shared key, it requires a dictionary attack to break it. Now, just to remind our listeners, we talked about this years ago, two thousand eight, as
0: a matter of fact.
1: This, er, yes, yes, every time it comes up. And remember that the the when we when we did abandon WEP, WEP, that was really badly broken, um, which I think was the title of one of our podcasts. Um, or even more badly broken than you know. Uh, to when we went to and like real finally, security experts were involved in the design of WPA and WPA two. What they did was to mix the user's key with the SSID, the um, the essentially the the router's broadcast identity, um, and they used pbkdf2 and 10000 iterations of a hash function so specifically because they understood if you captured the the over the air you you captured the you know some of the packets you could then you could then brute force by guessing possible passwords You'd have to mix in the SSID. That was the brilliance of doing that, which is why our advice back then was don't leave it set to Netgear or D-Link or Belkin or whatever. Make it your own. doesn't really matter what you make it because you don't get any security from that except that that breaks any pre-computation attacks where, like, for example, somebody could actually do all of this 10,000 iterations for a whole bunch of english common passwords against a, a given router's default ssid and that would make that the the attack faster but these so this attack is huge you know in wpa wpa2 the brute force attack is hugely slowed down which is why our advice i mean and this i think this might have been the genesis of the perfect passwords page was i said just get some gibberish just use gibberish and you're done. <laughs> you just don't have a problem. However, these guys allege otherwise. So they said, the more complex the password is, the safer the network security will be. More precisely, words like ice cream, computer, clouds, wireless, MyNet, Airhouse, etc., are commonly used, increasing the probability of finding the key in a short period of time. On the other hand, if the key consists of different types of characters, a combination of lowercase, uppercase, special characters, and numbers, the complexity would be increased. Hence, the adversary must have a dictionary consisting of all the different combinations of all the printable ASCII characters <laughs> of all the possible links. Imagine that, Leo. I wonder how big that You're would be. Groundbreaking. <laughs> in order to ensure that, and we have here a heap with a parens S in front of it, so if we, you know, we're being sexually neutral, he or she will be able to find the secret key. In order to have a complete dictionary with all the different combinations of all the standard printable characters, the length number of records of the dictionary will be and then they have a very impressive looking equation with summations and exponentials and things, which I actually think is wrong, but it's there. Um,
0: this is definitely an undergraduate paper.
1: Oh, well, I don't get how it got published in the International Journal of Internet Security. It's yeah. like, uh, what? Yeah. Anyway, so then they run their equation by performing the calculations. Now, this is in their paper, Leo. By performing the calculations, the complete dictionary would consist of (laughs) 3.991929703310227 times 10 to the 124 records. Mm -hmm. Thus, Mm -hmm. I'm quoting, thus, this procedure parens, that creates and searches the dictionary, close parens, will last several weeks using a simple computer due to the required time which will be extremely high. Now I thought, okay, several weeks. We take 3.99 times 10 to the 124th. We'll round that up to 4 just to make things easier. Um, If you take so that's the size of the dictionary. You take sixty seconds per minute. Oh, I'm sorry. First, first, you wanted how many can you do in a second? Let's be generous. We'll give them. We'll give them um, four. Um, oh, no, we'll give them a billion. You can do a billion a second. You you can't because of this ten thousand iteration hash. But for the sake of argument, we'll give them. You, you can test a billion in a second. So that's 10 to the 9. We subtract that from 124 because the other one was 10 to the 124. Now we're at about 4 times 10 to the 115. Whittled it down substantially. Now, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, and 365 and a quarter days per year, you know, counting for leap year. Um, We divide that... um, into this four times ten to the one fifteen to give us the number of years it will take. Now we're down to only one point two six four times ten to the hundred and eight.
0: That's more than a few weeks.
1: That's a <laughs> man. That that make that few weeks may qualify as the understatement, understatement. that we have actually ever these, encountered these, on the these, podcast. These, this is this
0: is bizarre because it's so you know just wrong. It's it's, it's so wrong.
1: Crazy. I mean it just it is and I, I mean I don't I don't understand why they wrote this. I don't understand why a a, a real journal published this and clearly that somebody was scanning through the journal or maybe the journal put out a press release that's probably what happened is it's like whoa and and this it was picked up by you know by various people and given the headlines that wpa2 was cracked Uh, it was very often tweeted to me as you might well yep there's science spot wpa2 wireless security cracked so um i know that
0: our listeners listen to get you know, don't an, give a, these uh, guys a doctorate or whatever the hell they're trying to get. But it, the International Journal of Information and Computer Security does—I mean, I don't know that journal—but it does sound like a serious enterprise. They got my money, yeah, thirty euros all <laughs> to themselves. <laughs> wow.
1: Anyway, but I had—I had to know what was going on, and nobody was out. El- nobody was publishing any details. So now we've got the details, and and everyone can relax as far i mean wpa2 is very well vetted now it has had the the crap pounded out of it and nothing has happened so i mean we've talked about the various disassociation hacks and games you can play with arp spoofing you know in an in an environment i mean there are I know high end things but fundamentally it's solid and the only the only weakness is that you would use a, you would leave the default SSID, which could provide a, an opportunity if people develop dictionaries, which would allow them not to have to do a custom dictionary for your particular SSID. And you got to use a good password. You, you know, th- yeah. that's you do that, and and you're really safe. It's unbelievable. Now, not to be outdone, again because this apparently was a slow news week, Symantec, who. We know knows better. Their headline was texting ATMs for cash shows cyber criminals increasing sophistication. And I I thought, oh, no. And of course, let's roll this in to the end of XP's support, IV drip from Microsoft. Why don't we? Even though it has nothing to do with it. So, Somadtech's blog posting starts, there is a growing chorus of voices calling for businesses and home users to upgrade existing Windows XP installations to newer versions of Windows, if not for the features, then at least for the improved security and support. ATMs, because we've got to mix this all together in this stew, are basically computers uh that control access to cash. Thus, why the burglars are, are, are hovering around them, as it turns out. Almost 95% of them run on versions of Windows XP. And we've heard that before, 95%. With the looming end of life for Windows XP slated for April 8th, 2014, 13 days away, the banking industry is facing a serious risk of cyber attacks aimed at their atm fleet can you have a fleet that doesn't go anywhere leo <laughs> does, that,
0: does that you i think they need a new collective go? noun not a fleet a murder of atms maybe
1: uh, this risk is not hypothetical it is already happening now It is already happening, despite the fact that we haven't yet reached April 8th. So we haven't yet cut off any of the security patches, which won't start getting cut off technically until the month afterwards, because after all, we only get them every month now. So in reality, you know, we shouldn't really be getting anything until May. Um, But notwithstanding that, the risk is not hypothetical. It's already happening. Cyber criminals says semantic are targeting ATMs with increasingly sophisticated techniques. Now, that's doubtless true. And then they explain, in late 2013, we blogged, very much like this one, about new ATM malware in Mexico, which could let attackers force ATMs to spew Leo, it's not it doesn't come out you. It doesn't come out in the little slot where you no, have to pick up no. the 20s. It flies you out. Get, you got to get a bag <laughs> and you stand back. Cuz this is going to come spewing out of wow. the ATM. I can't wait on on demand, and that's important cuz you wouldn't want it to just spew if you weren't around. No. You'd want to wait until you demanded it to spew, and then when you've got your cash bag ready, out, come, out comes all the money. And it uses an external keyboard, so it's like wow, you know, you hook an external <laughs> keyboard. That's up not going to attract ATM, attention. <laughs> and then you give it the "spew cache" <laughs> command, and stand back. That threat says Symantec was named backdoor Plutus. What? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. P L O U T U S backdoor dot Plutus. Uh, Some weeks later, we discovered a new variant, which showed that the malware had evolved into a modular architecture. And after all, modular computing, that's all the rage now. So the bad guys have that too, Leo. The new variant was also localized into English language, suggesting that, oh, I guess you had to do spew cache in Spanish previously. And that Confused some of the cyber criminals, so now they've translated it into English. Suggesting that the malware author has expanded their franchise. Ah, they're franchising. Oh, That's nice because yeah. there's like, a huge demand for like these cash, yeah. spewing, for cash spewing. <laughs> and you want to be able to I just franchise yeah. this. You really don't have to make the burgers yourself. You just sell the opportunity. Um, the new variant was identified. Are you ready? Yeah. Backdoor Plutus B referred to as Plutus throughout this blog. They're going to simplify it for oh, us. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So here it is. What was interesting about this variant of Plutus was that it allowed cyber to simply send an SMS to the compromised ATM, then walk up and collect the dispensed cash. It may... Seem incredible. I'm reading this literally from the blog. It may seem incredible, Leo. But this technique is being used in a number of places across the world at this time. So I dug deeper. You must first attach a cell phone via USB. Oh, to the ATM.
0: Oh, well, fortunately, there's a convenient USB port on every ATM machine uh, in the country. Then, then <laughs> yes, you're able to send an SMS message oh.
1: to the cell phone you have previously attached uh-huh. via USB. And by the way, that allows it to stay charged because otherwise <laughs> you got to get your cash out in a hurry. <laughs>
0: Oh, oh, so it has to God. be a, a USB with power. Okay, I'll make a note. Got to be a yeah. okay.
1: powered USB. Uh, okay, <laughs> find a cell phone, attach it to your ATM, and then make sure. With,
0: by the way, it's a burner with no, in no way uh, affiliated with you. Good point. Because yeah. you know, the,
1: the, when the when they wonder why the ATM <laughs> is a, has has spewed itself <laughs> to exhaustion,
0: spewing,
1: they'll come and find <laughs> Plutus B. In the in the back door, and I wonder why there's an extra cell phone attached, you know, behind this behind the thing.
0: Oh my lord! Yeah. So. Fortunately, I just was over to the Bank of America, and they've put crazy glue in the USB ports on all the ATMs to prevent Plutus. Thank you. Yeah, and if you do see,
1: like a. Cell phone velcroed onto the front.
0: <laughs> um, St- just stand um, at the slot because it's going to spew. I- exactly. Get your
1: bag ready. Someone who's not yet there may text it in advance of their arrival, and you can beat them to the spew.
0: Yeah. Now, if you had, I guess, if you could get, you know, behind the scenes at the ATM, or you could kind of break into the case, maybe there. Seems like it's Leo. a bad idea.
1: This is yeah. such nonsense. It's <laughs> okay. like. You know, okay, yes. We replaced, you know, the mechanism behind the front of the ATM with, you know, a a a card sorter, which we modified to spit out money, and when we turned it on, money got spit out. out. out.
0: Amazing. Uh,
1: yes, you know. That was our high school summer project. Yeah. So yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. So there are, that is actually some good serious news, believe it or not, and that is that e- that Google um, last Thursday, March 20th, announced that they were ratcheting up their march towards security to the final notch for Gmail. Um, I think it was back in 2010 that they made Gmail the default – they made HTTPS the default for new Gmail accounts, they weren't going to upset anybody. I mean, we, you know, we and this is another theme we see over and over and over is nobody wants to break what's working, even though what's working is security broken, they don't want to functionally break it. So, it's trade-off time. So, you know, and we've talked about this as this has been going along where where Google has been sort of Carefully moving forward, what they what they announced last Thursday, which went in effect on last Thursday, is you can no longer not get an HTtPS connection to Gmail. It's no longer something you have to configure manually to get it. Anybody even like from the first Gmail customer who never used HTtps. Now we'll find they are, like it or not. You can't otherwise get to Gmail. So I salute them. That is absolutely the right thing to do. Um, and and arguably, you know, they may have known of some edge cases where it would have broken things. Um, so they just, you know, gave everybody time to, to get ready so that this change wouldn't break anything that was significant. And uh, they've done that. And I imagine... Probably what they were doing is they set it so that new accounts would default that way. And they've had then years to collect incidences, you know, like, okay, now we're sort of, you know, softly encouraging everyone to connect with HTTPS. Who has a problem? And go explore those problems and fix them. And then when you finally, when like nobody is ever having a problem anymore, then just lock it down. Set it in stone, as you know I did with GRC.com, uh, I guess a little more than a year ago. So that's been done. and they did also confirm, in the same blog spot posting, they said, in addition, every single email message you send or receive, 100 percent of them, is encrypted while moving internally. This ensures that your messages are safe not only when they move between you and Gmail servers. But also as they move between Google's data centers, something we made a top priority after last summer's revelations. And, of course, they're talking about the discovery that the NSA was um, tapping into their inter-data uh, center uh, fiber connections. Yeah, the upstream so, stuff. Nice move, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and remember that email as a protocol is still itself not often secured. So this is if you're in Starbucks in their open Wi-Fi. Now you've got HTTPS with good certificates and Google. So your email going to Gmail and it moving throughout the Gmail system is encrypted. But unfortunately, unless Gmail is connecting to another encrypted email recipient or source, it is not encrypted. And we know that the NSA is perched right out there. That's the public Internet. And they're sucking mightily on the the flow of data across the public Internet. So, you know, people should still consider that their email is not secure unless they arrange as, and again, end to end encryption. Mm -hmm. That's the only way to do it, is you encrypt it before it leaves you and your destination recipient is able to decrypt it after they receive the encrypted blob. And, you know, that's going to end up being, you know, pretty much the way the internet gets re-engineered over the course of the next um, five to ten years, I think, is that's just going to be the way it happens. Um... A number of people mentioned an interesting looking um, crypto introduction, a course on cryptography. It's at crypto101.io. It began as a a a presentation, about a I think it was a fifty some minute presentation. There the video presentation is there on that page, but then it, it evolved into a a course on crypto it's a freely downloadable pdf that anybody who's interested in just sort of browsing around through these topics they talk about crypto and modes and and random numbers and all the things that we've talked about here um all pulled together into a uh into a basically a uh crowd supported course in cryptography so it's uh Crypto, C R Y P one dot io. For anyone interested, I got a number of people ran across it and tweeted it, so I wanted to let everybody know. And I said I was a little concerned about Snowden overstepping. Um, this report was surprising and and sobering. Um, this was covered by the New York Times. Um, a few days ago on the 23rd so uh, just recently I guess over the weekend um, the New York Times writes uh, oh the the headline was NSA breached Chinese servers seen as security threat the New York Times wrote the agency pried its way into the servers in Huawei's and I've been I've been practicing my pronunciation Leo nice. So, the servers in Huawei's sealed headquarters in Shenzhen, China's industrial heart, according to NSA documents provided by the former contractor, Edward J. Snowden. It obtained information about the workings of the giant routers and complex digital switches that Huawei boasts connect a third of the world's population and monitored communications of the company's top executives. One of the goals of the operation, codenamed Shot Giant, was to find any links between Huawei and the People's Liberation Army, one 2010 document made clear. But the plans went further. To exploit Huawei's technology so that when the company sold equipment to other countries, including both allies and nations that avoid bu- avoid buying American products. The NSA could roam through their computer and telephone networks to conduct surveillance. And if ordered by the president, offensive cyber operations, quoting um, the document, quote, says the New York Times, many of our targets communicate over Huawei produced products The NSA document said, quote, we want to make sure that we know how to exploit these products, it added, to gain access to networks of interest around the world. So um, I don't know how this infringes on any Americans' Fourth Amendment rights, which is what Snowden has been um, claiming as justification for this, and i 'm a little concerned that i mean I understand the way greenwald and and Snowden feel after you know basically with with all of the attack that they have been subjected to, but they need to be careful about not going too far. Um, the agreement has been made that that you know, all these documents were going to be vetted for their relevance to this specific issue of the NSA overstepping the 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 law and the U.S. Constitution. Um, this doesn't have any of that, so I was a little sad to see that. And I just thought, in the interest of fairness and balance, <laughs> uh, I ought to. I, th- I share think you this could too. argue that
0: a lot of the uh, revelations about targeted attacks, including that. Uh- massive dictionary of targeted attacks kind of are don't really fit that you know criterion of you know impinges on our fourth amendment rights yeah i think that is one that is really kind of one issue that uh, a lot of people have over Snowden's revelations Uh, it's not the the only one he did like that you know frankly
1: yeah and and i'm i just you know i've been a supporter In as much as like from day one, the first moment we discussed this, I said, I could never do this because I could never break my oath that I the only reason I had the I would have the information would be because I promised not to share it. So period. But um, as, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I liked that construction when when somebody was really complaining about Snowden. I said, look, you know, would any of us want to turn the clock back a year and go back to knowing nothing. If, you know, if there had been no Edward Snowden, think what we would not know. I I argue what we do know is really important. And, I mean, you know, huge percentage of the security industry has been radicalized by this. I mean, truly is, you know, in the process of changing the way the internet works. So I just think in net, it's been good. But boy, you know, if you're going to do this, you do need to be careful. And I, I think things like this really do overstep that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, there's a new Firefox beta. Boy, where we're the, the beta is for 29. We talked about 28 that just popped up. I got a balloon pop up during the podcast. I think it was last week. 28 came out. Now there's 29 in beta. It just seems like yesterday we were like talking about version 4. It's like wow, you know, we they really did start rolling these suckers out. Um, we don't know yet too much about twenty nine. What we do know is that this is the there. It's going to have a revamped user interface, which is the first time we will have seen this in some time. Um, there is a a name for it. I didn't write it down. I can't remember. It sort of looks like Australia, but it's not like, it's not Australia. It's something. <laughs> it's a word like that. We'll figure out how to pronounce it when 29 actually happens. They have a name for their new UI. They were trying to get it out in 25, but they have been continuing to try and it's finally ready. So they're really excited. The Mozilla folks, they think this is a dramatic step forward. They're saying that this is the most attention given to the user interface of a browser ever. So uh, lots of customizability, very easy to use. There's a tutorial that walks you through all the changes. You know, they're really, they're up in their game. So I'm glad to see that. I, we really, I'm bullish about hoping that Firefox continues to, to survive. Um, You know, Chrome is a great browser, but it is the case that it's from an ad Funded company, and I like the idea of having an alternative to to both Chrome and, and IE. Uh, a brief squirrel update: um, I did talk about it a little bit yesterday uh, because I, if, when we were talking about you know my love of coding and and why I code essentially. Um, I I posted a, a PNG. We'd, I didn't have it for the podcast yesterday, Leo. But there's in my show notes is a link if you want to bring it up. This was a and I did tweet it and I shared it with the people in the uh, uh, in GRC's news groups. Um, and as a matter of fact, we've got our dump truck here. Would you like to take a break?
0: Sure. <laughs> uh, we're brought to you by uh, the folks at ProXPN. You were just talking about how uh, Gmail is now SSL and and nice wonderful but what about everything else Proxpn makes sure that everything you do not just your email but everything you do on the internet is protected by strong encryption using open vpn we've had uh, steve look at it he's it's it's gibson approved pro xpn.com slash twit is the uh, website to go to to find out more uh, one of the advantages of ProxPN over say hosting your own open vpn server is uh, that they're hosting their servers are all over the world which means you can emerge on the public internet from your carefully encrypted tunnel in dallas los angeles seattle new york city or london or amsterdam or singapore so geographic restrictions be gone you can be anywhere in the world they also uh, of course protect you against snoops like your isp if you've got a snoopy isp or worried about the six strikes laws just use uh, a proxpn.com uh it works via open vpn or pptp if you're on an ios or android device be sure to check out their mobile apps the uh, Android app now adds PPTP. I'm sorry, adds uh, OpenVPN to Androids, which is fabulous. They also have Windows and Mac software that offer advanced controls. You can select ports, connect at startup, even select which program should be shut down should your anonymous connection be interrupted. ProxPN has a free version, uh, and you could try that. But I've got you know, why not do the premium version? Get the best, highest quality service because you can cancel anytime in the first seven days. And get a full refund. And you get a special deal as a Twit listener. Go to proxpn.com slash Twit. Sign up for the premium account. Normally $9.95 a month, $75 for the year. But if you use the offer code SN20, you get 20% off for the lifetime of your account. Less than 5 bucks a month on the yearly plan. And, of course, cancel any time in the first seven days for a full refund. proxpn.com slash twit offer code is sn20 if you're traveling if you plan to use open wi-fi access points if you're worried about your isp if you want to eliminate geographic restrictions you got to try it proxpn.com slash twit are the garbage men gone (laughs) <laughs> Did that work?
1: Still here, but I think they're done backing up. It only seems to make the It's really the, the backup the, uh, beep, beep. It is. It's yeah. the please don't run over anybody. <laughs> so we're going to we're going to prevent that from happening. <laughs> anyway, squirrel, um we're at 49 languages. We've actually registered 50, uh many of the later ones at by popular request. I don't remember now whether someone asked for Korean or Or it was one of the top 30 because I initially salted this with or seeded it with the top 30. um, But Korean is the only one for which no one has yet signed up to do the translation. I imagine it will not be hard to find some some English Korean speaking people who would be willing to make the translation. At which point that'll be 50 languages, which is pretty darn cool. I'd, I'd really and we're at 297 Translators, so just three shy of 300 people who have uh, volunteered to help translate the strings when that happens. Um, my work has been all about that. I've never needed to do an internationalized software. Um, people have been able to put up with my English only freeware and, and even SpinRight, my commercial software, uh, for the, all these years. But I love the idea of being able to let people use something that I hope they will be using a lot. In their native language. So what I was saying was that I, over the weekend, I had a need to look up an index for a translated string in a dictionary where the indexes would be sorted but not not contiguous. If they were contiguous, then I could just index directly into the dictionary. If it was the 50th index, I could just go, you know, multiply by the size of the entry and and that would immediately take me to the 50th entry but instead for for my convenience I want to be able to allocate like numbers for strings in batches with with and leave space between them so that I can grow the 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 user interface strings as the product matures um, and that requires that I search a table of contents for the um proper index and that required a binary search and i was excited when we were talking about on triangulation leo that i had just written a a binary search i mean i've written them
0: many times this is the best one i've ever written What i didn't understand is that it's like a dozen lines of code i mean it's it's and that's an assembly language that's there
1: it is it's it's on the screen there succinct Yes, it is just, that's what gave me a thrill. It's just like, it works perfectly. I ran a bunch of tests on it to make sure that I didn't miss anything. But that's what my assembly language looks like. And it's, it's the joy I get from coding is, is looking at a problem and, and see everyone keeps telling me, well, that's, that's been solved, Gibson. It's like, why are you wasting your time on that? It's like, yes, but I didn't solve it. And, <laughs> and I want to. And as, as I explained yesterday... It's the journey that I love more than I mean, I love finishing and and there's certainly pride of authorship and I love producing something beautiful. But for me, it matters what's inside. So anyway, this is part of this is where I am working now on Squirrel is I and in fact, it's done. I now have all of the strings outside of the application and it is instantly finding them and bringing them in so that so so there there's a like a, there's a language file separate from the executable and the crowdin.net um, website will produce with out of the efforts of all these translators will produce all of the translated strings which my the code that i have written will essentially compile into this this attachment to the executable And instantly create 50 versions of Squirrel, each in its own uh, specific language. And by the way, uh, as I mentioned before, these translations are all public. Um, Every single one of these strings um, is available to anyone who wants them. I've specifically made them public. So that other people implementing Squirrel clients on other platforms, which we certainly want and need, can, if they can arrange to reuse the same strings I have used in my user interface, they get all the translations for free for their own clients. So I think that that will tend to pull things together and unify the user's experience as they move from, for example, a smartphone smartphone platform over to Windows and and maybe Linux and Mac and, and so forth. And I haven't really shared a a fun Spinrite testimonial for quite a while. I've I've just been sharing really short tweets because the podcasts have been so long. I haven't wanted to make them any longer. But I got a real, this is not a long story, but a nice story from a Dick Snicket in New York whose subject was Spinrite Saves Music. This was dated the 16th of March, so a little over a week ago. He said, hi, Steve. I'm a music major in college and have a LOT, all caps, of Sibelius, Sibelius, I think I'm missing a syllable, Sibelius. Sibelius. Oh, it's a music app,
0: right? Yes. Yeah, Sibelius, yeah.
1: Sibelius. I have a lot of Sibelius music files on my computer. Then he says in parens, Sibelius is a program for music notation and scores. My computer died a few days ago and I had a backup on an external drive that was a week old. But during that week, I had made quite a number of changes to woodwind and percussion parts of two movements of a marching band show for my former high school. The changes were quite precise, and I had sat down and consulted a professor to help me adjust the parts to the student's skill level which I think is really a cool idea that you could like adjust the music to you know the people who are going to be playing it. And he said, in short, if I lost these changes, it would have been a nightmare to re-implement them. So I bought a copy of Spinrite, which I had heard about on the podcast. It took three hours to finish, and then the computer booted successfully, and I got all of my files back. I have since set up uh, a backup so that all of these important files get backed up next step choreograph the drill people's positions on the field thanks for such an awesome product and podcast i can now get back to real work without worrying about damage to anything i do in the future Spinrite is truly magic
0: yay so
1: dick thank you very much for, for sharing
0: yeah oh happy day uh, let's do one more, and then we'll uh, get to uh, the final installment. Yes, yes, of yes. Of our uh, security uh, on iOS, the wrap up of Ra- the wrap iOS, up. the wrap up, and of course, this is the one where we get to all the all the bad stuff. <laughs> well, so- something deliberate and something really suspicious. Charam saying it's pronounced Sibelius, not Sibelius. Sibelius. Ah, thank you, Which He was room. a composer, of course. And the Why didn't they just stream. call it
1: Bach? We all know how to pronounce that. <laughs> Bach. Call it Mozart. Bach.
0: Chopin. Chopin. Our, uh, our show today brought to you by our friends at Citrix. They do such great stuff, including a program that uh, will help everybody who is in the process of sending attachments. If you're in business, of course, sending attachments is something you do a lot of. But I got to tell you, you if you listen to this show or any of our other shows, we always are saying don't open attachments. Email attachments are a vector for viruses, spear phishing problems. Plus, frankly, they're not secure. Anybody along the way can read them. And there's always the issue of bounce backs, the size of these files. You know, many email systems reject anything more than a few megabytes. Nowadays, we're selling, sending out PowerPoints and uh, uh contracts, spreadsheets, images, and they're just so big that it just really isn't appropriate to email them. That's why I like ShareFile. In fact, I use ShareFile. Um, my ShareFile account, in fact, let me log in. I'll show you. Um, I use it to share a lot of things, uh, you know, sometimes for personal reasons. I shared photos with somebody I met, took some pictures of their kid. They said, can I have those? I said, yes, here's the ShareFile. Link. But most often I share it with the radio stations, audio that I record for the radio stations. And I'll just show you. This is my ShareFile account. The ShareFile is nice because it synchronizes automatically. The ShareFile program runs in the background, so I save the recordings to a local folder. They're then synchronized quickly up to the ShareFile store where it's very easy for me to say, hey, let's let's send these out uh, to our recipients. Now, you could do it in Outlook if you've got the Outlook plugin, but I just do it on the web like this. I click send, pick the file, click send. You can compose an email in their uh, web-based form But just for purposes of exposition, I'll show you the link way to do that, which is actually how I usually do it. Notice the settings. Email me when the item's been downloaded. Require recipients to enter name and email before downloading. These are all checkboxes, choices. You could choose when the download access expires, anything from one day to one year and never. Downloads per user. So I could say you can download this once for one day, and that's it. And then I'm going to click the link, Send Files. Now I'm going to get a unique URL, which is a leo.leport.sharefile.com URL that I can email to them. Let me show you what they get. I'll copy this to the clipboard and paste it into the uh, browser so you can see. They'll get the email saying, hey, here's the files you requested. This often goes to unsophisticated users at radio stations. So I can't have something that's going to make them sign up for something or even be complicated in the least. This is not complicated. Look what they get. A simple page with my logo, your, your logo in the case of your account, and a big button that says download. It tells them it's a WAV file. They can even preview the file before they download it. Um, this is really simple, straightforward, easy to use. We uh, discovered the other day that ShareFile has another wonderful feature uh, that you can also request a file. Somebody was calling up said, I'm an attorney and I want my clients, I, I do injury cases, I want them to send me pictures of the accident but I don't want them to have to have an account with some service. or, And I said, no, very simple. You click the request to file uh, box on your share file page. You could send an email that gives them a link. Let's make that link right now. And you see what you see. And I'm going to say request a file. They're going to get an email with this link. And again, this couldn't be easier. They don't have to set up an account. It just says, hey, we wanted some files from you to upload the file. Here's how you do it. You don't have to set up an FTP site. Nothing fancy. It's secure HTTPS, of course. You completely control the files. Your branding, so people know what it is. It's HIPAA compliant, SEC compliant. In fact, when you sign up for ShareFile, please tell them what industry you are in. That way uh, they can customize it and make sure it's compliant with the regulations in your field. Here's what I want you to do. Go to ShareFile.com. Click the link at the top of the page where it says Podcast Listeners, Click here. There are other links on the page. It's confusing. Just click the one that says podcast listeners. Click here. That lets them know you heard it on security now. In fact, fill in when they ask you for where would you hear it or the or promo code. Use the promo code security now. There it is. Enter name or offer code. Security now. Select your industry. Accounting, advertising, energy, engineering, insurance, legal, health care, all of these nonprofits. Uh, choose an industry. Press continue, 30 days free, sharefile.com. I'm telling you, you, there are lots of ways to do this. This is the one I use day in, day out because it works. It's easy. It's ShareFile. Try it free, 30days, sharefile.com. Use the offer code SECURITY now. All right, let's talk iOS security, Steve Gibson, part three. Part three. So everyone,
1: if, if anyone... Is listening to this and missed the last two podcasts? Um, you need to go back. Um, I'm not going to drag us all through where we've been. I'll just say that that I, from reading the the latest version of Apple's iOS security document, which was lengthy and full of really useful architectural details. I've developed a a very, I think, complete and mature understanding of of how focused Apple has been on the security of of the iOS platform. uh, That that, without exception, they have shown a respect for. uh, I mean, a technically enforced respect with the architecture and the design for the rights of the user. Nowhere are they receiving information that they don't need in order to deliver the services that they're offering. And, you know, this little phone that you hold in your hand is so easy to underappreciate because it it is a little crypto miracle. I mean, it it is... from From the beginning of its of its boot all the way through, it's employing absolutely state of the art cryptography in a in a way that shows evolution. I mean, we, we need to remember that that Apple has been understanding the problems and and getting in front of them as quickly as they can. But you know, the first iPhone, was a closed platform it wasn't there wasn't iTunes with the App Store well there was iTunes for music but not the App Store um, that really happened because people demanded that they have extensibility in, in this platform and so Apple created that in a way that as is necessary, allows them to maintain complete control over, the platform, if there was any place and, and you know, all of our experience in looking at the nature of security breaches shows us that, you know, if the, the perfect analogy is a chain of links and that, in, that the end to end chain is only as strong as the weakest one. Uh, if, you know, you keep pulling it, and you pull it and you pull it. And sooner or later, the weakest link is going to break. So if at any point. Apple had let had dropped their guard. Bad guys would be climbing into this environment, and the fact is, with with very few exceptions, that just doesn't happen because Apple has has really raised the bar. And as I was talking about, for example, address space layout randomization, ASLR, in the context of Windows, Windows still is carrying the legacy of its past that prevents it from forcing address space layout randomization on all applications running in the OS. They would love to because then they would be more secure. If something got a foothold, there'd be less it could do with it. Apple, having the advantage of coming along later, was able to say, oh, we're going to have that from the beginning. So no developers were ever able to develop with the assumption that things were in fixed locations in memory. No one ever should have really, but the nature is that people do. So so Microsoft got caught off, got caught by this, Apple has had the advantage of, of not being. So there are essentially three things that I, that I have left to discuss. Airdrop is an, is a feature which is newly been added to the platform. And once again, I am, very impressed with the design of this. Essentially, AirDrop is an ad hoc Wi-Fi network, which um, which bridges between devices. So it do- it doesn't use um, you know a, a a central access point or router somewhere. It is a device to device. So uh, you know an ad hoc point to point network, which is bootstrapped by Bluetooth. So it's, it's through Bluetooth that the devices find each other and exchange their initial negotiation, um, agree about who they are and what they want to do, g- get people to agree at both ends that they want to establish this airdrop connection. And then they that negotiation provides the keying to the Wi-Fi connection, which the devices then both bring up and find each other, establish a Wi-Fi link, and then use that for the bulk of data transfer. So, you know, beautifully designed. Um, they, they, they you know To give a little more depth to this, they said iOS devices that support AirDrop use Bluetooth low energy and Apple created peer-to-peer Wi-Fi technology to send files and information to nearby devices. When a user enables Airdrop, a 2048-bit, so a two a twenty forty-eight-bit RSA identity is stored on the device. Additionally, an airdrop identity hash is created based on the email addresses and phone numbers associated with the user's Apple ID. So this they're doing in order to create a, a fingerprint of the user without revealing the email addresses and phone numbers. Essentially, this is an alias of those things. When a user chooses airdrop as the method for sharing an item, the device emits an airdrop signal over Bluetooth low energy. Other devices that are awake in close proximity and have airdrop turned on detect the signal and respond with a shortened version of their owner's identity hash. So this is another clever thing. There's sort of a, um, an interlocked step that we go through. So they respond with, so a- a anyone who, who is within your vicinity will essentially send a shortened version of their owner's identity hash to you. By default, says Apple, AirDrop is set to share with contacts only. Users can also choose if they want to be able to use AirDrop to share with everyone or turn off the feature entirely. But in contacts only mode, the received identity hashes are compared with hashes of people in the initiator's contacts, which is perfect. It's beautiful. So so you send out a hash of your identity. Everyone who receives that sends back essentially a fragment of a hash of theirs. You then the initiator look through your contacts for any, and, and, and basically you make the same short hash that they made from your contacts and do a hash compare to see whether you have in your contacts, any people within range that have just identified themselves with theirs, essentially. Apple then says, if a match is found, the sending device creates a peer-to-peer Wi-Fi network and advertises an airdrop connection over the Bonjour protocol. Using this connection, the receiving devices send their full identity hashes to the initiator. If the full hash still matches contacts, the recipients first name and photo if present in contacts are displayed in the airdrop sharing sheet. So you, you then see the recognizable identity from your own contacts list of the people whose, whose devices have responded to your to your query. When using airdrop the sending res, the sending user selects who they wish to share with. The sending device initiates an encrypted, TLS connection with the receiving device, which exchanges their iCloud identity certificates. The identity in the certificates is verified against each user's contacts. Then the receiving user is asked to accept the incoming transfer from the identified person or device. If multiple recipients have been selected, this process is repeated for each destination. So, again, beautifully put together, we have we have iCloud essentially serving the role as certificate authority that is remember that that an ssl connection tls is only as secure as the authentication of the endpoints because it's inherently it's inherently su- subject to man in the middle attacks but the man in the middle cannot cannot impersonate the endpoint because they have a signed certificate. In this case, apples through the iCloud services, links their identities to iCloud certificates to solve the authentication problem. So you know this works. you know they've they've nailed a, a what what again to the user looks like a simple thing. You say, oh, Airdrop. I want to send this to someone sitting next to me. So you turn it on, they turn theirs on, they show up in your little sheet, you say, send this to them, and they receive it. What went on behind the scenes is what I just described. You know, state-of-the-art, you know, really perfectly designed um, uh, security protocol. So again, hats off. Now that's the end of all the good news. We've reached the end of the good news. Um, Two problems. They then discuss iMessage. Apple says, Apple iMessage is a messaging service for iOS devices and Mac computers. iMessage supports text and attachments such as photos, contacts, and locations. Messages appear on all of the users' registered devices so that a conversation can be continued from any of the user's devices. iMessage makes extensive use of the Apple Push Notification Service, APNS. Apple does not log messages or attachments. And their contents are protected by end-to-end encryption, so no one but the sender and receiver can access them. Apple cannot decrypt the data, and none of that is true, um, which is unfortunate. I mean, I understand that to some degree, I I guess I don't understand. The other parts of this document are sufficiently detailed technically, like what I just described about AirPlay. I, you know, that's... A beautiful protocol description. Unfortunately, what they've just said here is not true. Um, Going on, they said when a user turns on iMessage, the device generates two pairs of keys for use with the service an RSA 1280 bit key for encryption and an ECDSA 256 bit key, that's elliptic curve digital. Uh, Signature algorithm key for signing. For each key pair, the private keys are saved in the device's keychain and the public keys are sent to Apple's directory service, IDS, where they are associated with the user's phone number or email address along with the user's APNS, that's that push notification service address. So then Apple says, how iMessage sends and receives messages. Users start a new iMessage conversation by entering an address or name. That is, you know, who you want to send this to. If they enter a phone number or email address, the device contacts the IDS, that's that directory service, to retrieve the public keys and APN addresses, the push notification addresses, for all of the devices associated with the addressee, okay? So you, you know, you're, you're, you're sending this over iMessage to somebody who's got an iPad, two iPads and an iPhone. All of those are listed for that person by, by phone number and email address and associated with them. So Apple sends you their public keys, which is cool. If the So it says um, if the user enters a name, the device first utilizes the user's contacts to gather the phone numbers and email addresses associated with that name, then gets the public keys and APN, the push notification addresses from the directory service. The user's outgoing message, that is the message we're sending out to this person, is individually encrypted using 128-bit. Keyed AES in counter mode, which is fine, for each of the recipient's devices. So remember, since each device has its own public key pair, the private key it keeps and the public key it sends to Apple, then in order to send simultaneously to three devices, you need to individually, um, you probably, probably they generate the symmetric key. Randomly, and then they're encrypting that three times using each recipient's device public key, then bundling that all together and sending it off. Tangling it. Tangling it. It's then dispatched to the APN, the push notification for delivery. It says metadata, such as the timestamp and uh, uh, routing information, is not encrypted. Communication with the push notification system is encrypted using TLS. So what's the problem? Beautiful architecture. They, very straightforward. Everyone generates a, a public key pair. They never share the private key. I'm sure it's all enclaved in, you know and, and, and well-encrypted and all of that. The problem is everybody shares their public key with Apple. And again, that's not a problem either, except that is that we ask Apple for their public key. And that's the problem. We don't get it from them. We get it from Apple. And so it is absolutely not true that this is, that Apple cannot decrypt the data. All Apple has to do because we remember, users have no visibility into any of this. We don't see people's public keys. We're not, you know, saying, "Hey, does your public key start with E8DF?" You know, C9. This just all happens magically. All Apple has to do is is give us one of their public keys. Give us a a public key for which they have the private key, and now they can decrypt everything. So instead of In this example I just painted, instead of giving us three public keys and we encrypt the message, we encrypt the key, which encrypted the message three times, they send us four public keys, one of them for which they have the private key. Now they can decrypt everything, and we have no way of controlling it or knowing it. So, so again, my only complaint is that they have... Stated something which is flatly not true in the iOS security document. They have the capability of decrypting everything because they control the directory of public keys. And this process is completely opaque to end users.
0: I so, think this compromises that document in the sense that, well, if they didn't tell the truth about that, there might be other... Parts I, of I the don't think that are I don't think I don't think
1: so because because they I mean they told the truth about the architecture. Right. They just didn't draw the they didn't they didn't draw the conclusion that an adversary would draw. Right, right. And so but unfortunately everyone knows that in, in order to check security you take an adversarial posture. Right. And so, you know, so in fact if the, F- if the NSA or the FBI or a three-letter initial organization compelled Apple to share iMessage flow from an individual, Apple can. Yeah. So, so the problem is this was – and again, it's only this statement that I have a problem with. The architecture seems fine, but – Users certainly listeners of the podcast now understand that there is a trade-off for the convenience of iMessage, and that is you do not actually have authentication. Without authentication, you do not have end-to-end security. This is what Threema gives us: is that you know Threema is not so easy to use. You you have to arrange to share and authenticate your public keys yourself. Apple makes this transparent. Therein lies the, 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 the weakness of it as a messaging system a security conscious person can trust. Convenient, yes. Fine for everybody, yes. Secure,
0: no. So hey, just uh, so okay. A program note: We have got about twenty minutes. Uh, okay, the Facebooks uh, Facebook folks have announced that they just acquired uh, the Oculus Rift company for uh, two billion plus dollars, and we're going to do at uh, three fifteen your time. We're going to okay. break in with our news department and get uh, some live coverage of Facebook's announcement. So just a note. Perfect. Yeah. Yes.
1: Um, and that's perfect timing for me. So, so I've, I've said what I wanted to say. I wanted to, you know. The architecture is nice. The weakness is that we're trusting them with the authentication side. That's a benefit for ease of use. It's a complete collapse of iMessage as a as a secure messaging platform. To get that, you simply have to go out of Apple. You need to use Threema or Text secure. Um, and I'm still liking Threema better. It's it's again, it's a little more obligation, but it's very clear and has now been subject to two independent security audits. I haven't talked about that yet, but there I've got two security audits that then this thing just comes up you know, five stars out of five across the board. And so, I am
0: liking Text Secure. Uh I really yeah, yeah it seems like a good solution. So and we know Marley doesn't Marlon what is his name? Marlon Mike Mikey sp Marlon Spike Marlon Moxie Marlin Spike. <laughs> Mar- Moxie Marlon Spike. Moxie Marlon Spike.
1: And I think he is, he's a deep sea fisher. I think that's where Oh that is all he? Came oh,
0: from. interesting. Huh.
1: We we've seen pictures of him on a on a boat with lines running oh, over the sides. So, right. yeah. I think that's where he got that. Um, I did want to mention before I talk about iCloud, Siri briefly, only because in order to offer the services that Siri offers, Siri, to, to assume that she's a person for a moment, uh, Siri needs to know a lot about you. If you say, call Mary... How does Siri know who Mary is? Well, obviously, there's a Mary in your contacts. Well, Siri doesn't live in your phone. Siri lives in the cloud, which means your contacts live in the cloud if you're going to use Siri. And so this is, again, this is just, I'm bringing this up for the sake of, of completeness. Apple explains very clearly In order to facilitate series features, some of the user's information from the device is sent to the server. This includes information about their music library, song titles, artists, and playlists, the names of reminder lists, and names and relationships that are defined in contacts. All communication with the server is over HTTPS. When a Siri session is initiated, the user's first and last name from contacts, along with a rough geographic location, again, because Siri needs to know where you are if you say "find pizza nearby, uh, is sent to the server. This is so Siri can respond with the name or answer questions that only need an approximate location, such as those about the weather. If a more precise location is necessary, perhaps to determine the location of nearby movie theaters, for example, the server asks the device to provide a more exact location. And again, this is this is Apple showing as much respect for the user's privacy as possible. I mean, I'm not arguing that Apple's collecting anything they don't need. This but this is informative, I think. And and again, not only of Apple's excruciatingly careful policy i mean they could ask for your exact position right off the bat but they're saying no we're not going to ask unless we really unless you're asking a question that requires siri to know more closely where you are so i that's cool i appreciate that this is the approach they've taken and then they do take credit for it saying this is an example of how by default Information is sent to the server only when it's strictly necessary in order to process the user's request. In any event, session information is discarded after 10 minutes of inactivity. The recording of the user's spoken words is sent to Apple's voice recognition server. If the task involves dictation only, the recognized text is sent back to the device. Otherwise, Siri analyzes the text and, if necessary, combines it with information from the profile associated with the device. For example, if the request is, send a message to my mom, the relationships and names that were uploaded from contacts are utilized. The command for the identified action is then sent back to the device and uh, to be carried out. So you know, I I thought it was, it's interesting that, that when you think about it, it's easy to take it for granted without realizing, wow, you know, set, you know, send flowers to my mom. That's, that requires a lot of contextual information that Apple obviously has to have. And that's not being done in the phone. It's, it's leaving the phone, but again, Apple is, is minimizing what they take and discarding it, um, a short time after they've used it. So, um, good to know, but again, uh, evidence that where they can, you know, they really are doing the right thing. Now, lastly, um, this is enough of a concern that it would, I think, leave lead people to change, to, to consider whether they want to change their behavior, um, certainly based on what their behavior is. Um, and that is, the one aspect of iCloud architecture, which is the keychain syncing, unfortunately, super handy. I mean, really, if you're an Apple fan person and you've got lots of iOS devices, you've got them all synced into the cloud and bookmarks. Are, I mean, I'm I'm using the, this stuff more and more. I'll like... Deliberately bring up a page on an iPad I always have next to me here where I'm working. Drop it on, drop it onto my reading list, knowing that the iPad that lives in the car, when I go out for a meal, will have that link and I can pick it up and and read the research that I was deferring till then. So I love all this stuff. But the keychain is a concern in a pure. RSA sort of worry mode. Everywhere that we have encountered, they have been using the right crypto in every instance. And in fact, I reread the paper, the entire thing, after I stumbled my toes over the use of the wrong elliptic curve for protecting the keychain. Because it is the only place in Apple's entire architecture they use the wrong elliptic curve. And by wrong, I mean one that came from the NSA, which no security expert now trusts. But
0: in that time that they used it, it was unknown, right? We didn't know that they had compromised these. Is that right um, or no? I know. I'm afraid that it, didn't we get all the iCloud stuff relatively recently? Yeah, but what we've learned about the RSA, NIST. Oh, stuff. that yes, that that recently, much more recently.
1: So, so it, yeah, Those so curves it's very much... were
0: trustworthy
1: until then, right? Yes, and um, okay. So let l- let me back up a little bit, and well, what's creepy is even the exact way that they're using it. They said, when a user enables iCloud Keychain for the first time. The device establishes a circle of trust, and and okay, and, and the members of the circle are the you, all of the users iOS devices, establishes a circle of trust, which will exist among devices owned by the individual, and creates a syncing identity for itself. A syncing identity consists of a private key and a public key. That's okay. The public key of the syncing identity is put into the circle of trust, and the circle is signed twice. First, by the private key of the syncing identity, then again with an asymmetric elliptical key using P256, derived from the user's iCloud account password. Also stored with the circle are the parameters, random salt and iterations, used to create the key that is based on the user's iCloud password. Then they said, the signed syncing circle is placed in the user's iCloud key value storage area. They said, it cannot be read without knowing the user's iCloud password and cannot be modified without having the private key of the sinking identity of its member so it's interesting and, and 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 unfortunately without real details it's impossible to know exactly what's going on but what's odd is first of all they used the proper curve, curve 20, 255.19, Dan Bernstein's bulletproof solid elliptic curve and said so proudly throughout this document in every single other instance. Or they use large RSA bit keys, uh, 2048 or 4096 um, generally. Here in iCloud for no explicable reason mm. they have not used the good curve they have used the, the p256 curve which nobody now trusts um we know that it came from a guy named jerry solinas at the nsa i mean we've gone back the, the crypto community has has really looked at this carefully and um and it was generated by the NSA using an SHA-1 hash where the, where the, we've been given the seed of a series of hashes and downstream of the series the, is a result on which this elliptic curve is based. And, and I don't remember now whether it was Bernstein or Schneier... Um, or Matt w- but all three of them have said no and one of them suggested that if the NSA knew how to find weaknesses in e- ECC they and and there and there were enough of them then they could hide the fact that they had found a weakness by using a an SHA-1 hash chain and simply running it forward until it gave them a pseudo-random number that resulted in a weak key. That allows them to say, look, we didn't choose this weak key. The SHA-1 hash chain chose it for us. So obviously it's random, except they could have seen what they, all they had to do was try a lot of them until they found one that was weak and then present that one. And, with, and that is exactly what they did. They said, we started with this seed, we hashed it like crazy, and look what came out the other end. So trust us. Mm. And and it turns out that there are, aside from suspicion, there are many characteristics of this specific curve that make it weak. Um. And I've got links here in the show notes if anyone wants to pursue it. There's safecurves.cr.yp.to, which is Bernstein's site. Um, There is another site that that talks about it. Schneier has written that he absolutely would not trust this curve. Now, here's what's also spooky is that they said –
0: you know, Steve, elliptic- I hate to say, say this. We're out of oh, time.
1: Oh, you're right. Uh, you're right. Well, and in fact, we're 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 done essentially. Well, what, I want to know is,
0: what's also spooky. <laughs> I, well, what's also spooky is that
1: this weakness allows keys to be read but not modified. The architecture allows that. So if the if there was a weakness that yeah. you wanted to put in, this gets everybody's iCloud shared keychains, making them readable not modifiable and that's what and you want that's that's kind of, exactly yeah. what you want
0: well we're gonna have to get to jailbreaking some other time i'm sorry to say but uh you can find this episode and every episode of uh, security now at steve's site grc.com 16 kilobit versions of the audio plus full text transcripts you can also find the fabulous spin right the world's best hard drive recovery and maintenance utility there and all of steve's free stuff including his perfect passwords if you want one for your wpa2 implementation uh we have audio and video at our site twit.tv slash sn and of course you can watch us live every tuesday 1 p.m pacific 4 p.m eastern time 2000 utc on twit.tv steve we'll talk to you next week questions you think i guess we're gonna do q
1: a for sure and i will just pull this little bit of here uh, uh at the end uh together for the beginning of next week Good. and then we'll be into we'll q a
0: So your questions to grc.com slash feedback. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now.